0: I think that's probably was like the hardest part about failure was like, I lost these people who I personally know as money. I still harbor a secret ambition that one day I'll be so successful, I'll be able to just swoop in and write them a check with interest. You know, who knows, at least to pay them back.
1: Hello everyone. My name is Christina Chapel, and I'm the investment director at 11 Traps Ventures and your host for the Resilient Founder podcast. You know there are plenty of podcasts out there that talk about how to boost revenue, best go-to-market strategies, and how to maximize your business outcome. And while we certainly care about all of that, that is not necessarily what we are here to discuss today. On this podcast, we will talk about the downward journey, um, where you know we're highlighting stories of human resilience, discussing the strain with both high, both highs and lows of entrepreneurship and equipping our listeners with the best practices to run and finish their race as well. Today, we are so delighted to have Avi Gandhi here with us. Avi is a top voice on LinkedIn, and he's led multiple million-dollar revenue creator economy teams at Patreon, Wheelhouse, and WME. He's on a mission to help great people, products, and companies win in the creator economy. And he's here to share a bit of his background today. So in this episode, the plan is to walk through Avi's story, how he has embodied resilience after winding down his company, Spectate, and we'll share bits of wisdom for those who are presently building. So with that, let's get started. Avi, thank you so much for giving us a bit of your time and being here today.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I... uh... I've been thinking about like wanting to talk about my experience as a first-time founder and uh, the challenges and the eventual, as you put it, downward journey. So I'm glad that I have this opportunity.
1: I'm so happy we could be a medium for you to talk about those things. And I guess to set the stage, I would love to hear... Um, about your story. So, where did you grow up? Who were your people? Um, what were some aspects of your upbringing that you feel like formed you?
0: Yeah. Uh, oh, that's like where to start. Where to. Uh, where to go? Yeah, I, I grew up in a small town uh, in the East Bay area called Danville. Uh, my parents immigrated from India in the eighties and uh, moved there when I was six, and so I grew up there. Went to school there. Um, I went to Yale for college. Um, so I was, you know, did, did well in high school and, uh, managed to get through the admissions process there. Um, and I didn't really, I was kind of like, I was kind of list listless and a little bit, uh, uh, I had no like set path, right. Um, my family being, you know, Indian immigrants wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer, you know, get a higher degree I was I'm an extroverted person I was frankly bored of school I think I burnt out on school trying to get into Yale so once I got there I didn't really want to keep doing it and but I didn't know what I wanted to do uh, with my life and I worked actually for a startup throughout college I worked for actually the now infamous Parker Conrad's first startup Uh, I guess he's famous. He's that he's, he has moved past, uh, the Zenefits controversy, um, which is good for him. He was great. He was actually my, I would say my first mentor. Uh, he taught me how to write and I put that to use today. Um, I, I wrote for his first startup Wiki invest and he gave me very direct and very useful feedback and advice on how to write articles well, how to use data uh, in my writing and actually if you look at my LinkedIn posts today, still the best performing posts I, I have are the ones where I actually use data, the up points that I'm making. So that was, that was that. Um, and I, yeah, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I watched too much Entourage, uh, with my friends. Throughout college and I thought, hey, that Ari Gold guy, you know, problematic show today, by the way, you go back and watch it, uh, you're like, this doesn't age well. But at the time, uh, you know, I was twenty one and trying to figure out what to do with my life. I was like, that Ari Gold guy looks like he's got a pretty cool job. And so I moved out to LA and uh and somehow talked my way in the door at WME, which is Owned, which is now Endeavor and owned by the real Ari Emanuel, who Ari Gold is based on, and became a talent. Uh, well, I joined the mailroom out of Yale, which, you know, uh, as a real, uh, well, it could have been a hit to the ego, but somehow I convinced myself that it was the coolest thing in the world. Wow. Uh, what were your boys doing thing. at the time? Uh a lot of them went to med school to grad school a lot of them went into finance right so a lot of my classmates uh, from Yale were yeah the the go to thing to do from an Ivy league school when you don't want when you don't know what you want to do with your life is go to finance cuz then you get paid six and back in the day you got paid like 150k which today is like i don't know 300k starting I mean it's like stupid and so you know you could make a lot of money and You work hard, but you don't really have to like. Yeah, they would work hard, but you would also kind of figure out what you liked, uh, and a lot of them eventually left that two, three years out with a bunch of money saved up. Uh, Meanwhile, I was in the mailroom making twenty-eight k a year, microwaving eggs from the mailroom kitchen for breakfast, and uh, and loving it. Uh, uh, Yeah.
1: So your peers. Was there anyone else who took a rogue route like you or did you find yourself a bit on an island and was that a natural place for you to be or, you know, was that, oh, that's classic Avi. He would go and do this other untraditional contrarian route.
0: It's an interesting question. I... I certainly had a few friends and peers who did different things. I have a friend who, you know, wanted to make documentary films, but along the way ended up working at like random news stations on the 3am shift around the country before I convinced him to move to LA to pursue that documentary dream. Uh, I had a friend who, this is a more sad story, but like wanted to be an actor, ended up yeah, working at a bar where he became an alcoholic and 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 had to churn out of L.A. get treatment. Now he's great, has a daughter, is sober. It's all good. But uh, you know, I was he was my roommate uh, when I first moved here, so it was it was a ride with him. Um, you know, L.A. is a place where people come who have dream big dreams, and whatever ends up happening, there's a story along the way for each of them. I think that's kind of a cool part about all this.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And remind me, how long did you spend at WME? And how long did you spend specifically in that mailroom? How long do you think you would have put up to be in that place versus, you know, starting to get responsibility? And as your finance peers started to churn out of that industry, did you find many of them coming to you um, to kind of talk about, you know, your path or next steps.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, before I joined, I read everything I could about it. It's kind of how I got a foot in the door, right? So I read The Mailroom, which is kind of the seminal book about the talent agencies in Hollywood. And I talked to, I used the WME network, used my friends' networks. Uh, my Yeah, I was actually at the time friends with my now wife and was living with her family, I basically talked my way into, you know, getting her parents to let me stay with them while I was trying to find a job. I think her mom knew that one day it was going to go somewhere. Um, and her dad, you know, had a lot of friends who were kind of in the of doctor, but he just knew people around LA. And, um, and so, uh. I talked to a lot of people and all of them said, go to the talent agency. Whatever you want to do, you want to be an agent, you want to be a producer, you want to just work at a studio, whatever it is, start at a talent agency. And I knew I wanted to be an agent and I fe- you know, I found my way into the mailroom. I, 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 actually, her dad got me a meeting with a partner uh, who is now a manager, uh, Jenny Rawlings, and I somehow convinced her to put my name in and they called me a few weeks later and said you start tomorrow and so that's what happens you start tomorrow uh, and I and so I joined and it's funny I actually joined so they, at the time they had two different mailrooms they had a, a mailroom for music and a mailroom for everything else uh, film TV yada, yada yada and I thought I wanted to be film TV because our Gold is film and TV right and so I joined that melorim and after a month or so a month or two i realized i didn't really know anything about what anyone was talking about i didn't know who most of the directors or the writers they were talking about was i mean i was reading all the scripts doing all the thing but i wasn't in it and i never had been i wasn't like a film fanatic or a tv fanatic you know my my i, I actually at the time lived with three other people so one of my other roommates is now a you know, an agent and maybe even a partner at WME in the TV space. At the time, she could tell you the name of the third writer in the room on name the TV show, right? And I'm like, ah, that's not me. Uh, and so, I ended up switching over to the music mailroom because in college I was a DJ and I, you know, loved music and uh, I wasn't really interested in touring. But someone told me there was a woman who worked the, in the music department named Suzanne Brantner who was kind of starting or had launched like a self-serve department where they were helping artists release their own albums. And it was trying kind of trying to take advantage of these emerging digital technologies to uh, get in the middle and help artists uh, get away from the label system. And that, to me, sounded really interesting. And so um, I... Managed to talk my way through what was probably the hardest interview I've ever had that Benjamin scales is the uh, head of HR for music and that interview is legendary uh, in the music industry. and it's just so intense. It's very fast paced. He asked the most deep probing questions. Take just us there. Well,
1: yeah. What was it like for you? Do you remember any of the questions he asked or?
0: I, the one question I remember is like, what was the hardest moment uh, or what's the hardest thing you've ever experienced? And then he didn't even let me finish and ask the next question halfway through my response. And so like, it was like that. Because the point is like, you got to be on your toes, right? Like it's fast paced. Agencies are notorious and agents are notorious for being aggressive and like, you know, impatient. And so like, she's he, checking if you're gonna be able to handle it. Um, the other piece of it was that you had to, we, had to, we had to memorize within the first week, every single agent's name, their assistant's name, their initials, their phone extension, the territories that they booked, um, and you had to pass with a hundred percent, like a test where you Yes. yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, yeah, that was, it was wild. So I, I, I joined that and within like a month, Suzanne's desk had opened up and they knew I wanted that desk and, uh, and you know, she knew that I had a background in tech, uh, like working at startups in college. And, and so, you know, we got along well and I got onto her desk and, Um, I learned a lot from her about marketing and about how, you know, all these new at the time, like Eventbrite was brand new and square was brand new. We were the first people in Hollywood to use square at a live event to sell merch, that kind of like, we were doing those kinds of things. And so I was her assistant for, I can't remember, six to eight months. And then she ended up getting promoted to lead the digital department. And so she ended up making me her coordinator um which is kind of the step between assistant and agent and so most people have to be an assistant for like three four years they have to work for multiple bosses usually there's a hierarchy of like agents and you try to you know work your way up the hierarchy until eventually you work for a partner or board member (laughs) i skipped all that right place right time i think and uh and so i worked for her for you know another year she left um And shortly after that, a guy named Dan Porter was hired to be the head of digital. He promoted me to be an agent, and so I was an agent there until 2016. And we were the kind of stomping ground for digital media. Like At the time, digital just meant anything that's on the internet. And so we were the first people in Hollywood representing YouTube stars, Vine stars back in the day. But I was also... You know going up to the Bay Area to meet with video game companies to try to pitch celebrity partnerships and I was also working with an esports company that we acquired to integrate them across WME and IMG and I was also uh figuring out how podcasting worked and so it was just all of this kind of new now businesses that we take for granted but back then it was so new and I was on the forefront and that was really exciting
1: Thank you so much for sharing that because I think there are so many threads, whether it be leadership or serendipity. And I think I'm curious to hear more about what your work life looked like and your personal life too. Um, Moving to LA, you didn't have prior ties there. It wasn't like you grew up in LA. And a lot of people have the grind mindset, especially as you're graduating school, which I think is healthy in some regards, um, but potentially can be dangerous if um, you don't know what you're striving for and you're just like vainly toiling away. Um, can you speak to positioning yourself well to be like brought along and indispensable so that if your superiors are getting promoted, like you are also lifted um like what that kind of looked like for you
0: yeah i it's a it's a great question i've always been very good at um at being a chameleon and like trying to like fit in with the people around me because like you know danville is like my mostly white town like my parents were some of the few non-white people there i was one of the few non-white people in my high school um and you know this was like 30 years yeah well 30 years ago almost um and so like it was a very different world um and so i got good at trying to fit in uh by like mimicking and imitating and talking like people talk and all that and the interesting thing about being in the digital department for those years i would say that at the time that department was the smartest department in hollywood uh You know Suzanne, Chris Jackman, Dan Porter, Bo Bryant—like these, these are like very, very smart people who are coming up with brilliant new ways to make money for talent because they had to, because there weren't any ways to make money for talent. Um, And and then they had to go and not just sell some middle manager on deploying budget, but like had to sell CEOs of companies from you know, startups all the way up to Fortune 500 companies. And so they talked at a very high level. And just being around them, I learned how to talk at a much higher level than I actually was. And so I was like a 26-year-old in the room with CEOs telling them about trends backed by data that, their research departments weren't telling them ad age wasn't telling them like i sounded a lot smarter and more senior than i was i still tell when i when i talk to like young people and they're like how do we get uh how do we get promoted how do we like grow in our careers i'm like read everything and like pay attention to how the people above you talk and talk like that like be smarter you know think about the why and talk about the why, right? Um, And I think that ultimately is what helped me succeed. It's what helped me build a reputation and get the respect of people who were much, much more senior than me um, and build a network and relationships. But like at the end of the day, I was still a kid, right? I was still like 26, 27. I'd never failed at anything in my life, right? Like valedictorian high school, Got into Yale, uh, you know. Got into the mailroom at WME, which is extremely difficult to do. Became an agent in less than three years, which is like nearly unheard of. So, you know, I had a had an ego, and I had, you know, I also like, frankly, like was just kind of like, do first, think later. Um,
1: Thank you for calling all that out. And
0: well, I think it leads to like. Yeah, it, I think it all contributes to the the next part of the story.
1: Right. So you're an agent at WME, and now take us to Spectate and becoming a founder. Um, what were some of the, like, fill in the gap for us? What did that look like, and how did you end up deciding to build?
0: Yeah. Yeah honestly it's a little embarrassing so uh i will be as brutally honest and truthful about like what happened and how i got there as possible i had no idea what i was doing and honestly i think a few things came together to drive me this path one i was you know very arrogant um to the point where you know i I thought that if, you know, I was had gotten 30 under 30 and all these things, you know, like I was like, oh, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I'm meeting all these startup founders who are raising big bucks who like have no networks. They don't know anyone. They don't seem that smart. They have bad ideas. Like I could start a company and raise money. That'll be easy. It'll be easy to be a startup founder. And I, yeah, I kind of skipped this part of the story, but like in college, you know, I joined the mailroom at WME, and I and I wanted to become an agent. But my long-term goal was always to eventually be like, yeah, you know, a tech tech founder. Be like, yeah, you know, in college, like Facebook was blowing up, like Mark Zuckerberg was in the news all the time. You know, after college, like it was Evan Spiegel and Snapchat. Um, and like, you know, when I was, you know, in college, so my mother passed away when I was in college from cancer. I took a whole semester out actually to take care of her um, while she was you know on her deathbed basically and while i was doing that you know there was also a caretaker there and so like i would, i basically worked for parker and wiki invest during the days between like you know making her food and hanging out with her and stuff like that and i also would read a lot and i like subscribed to the financial times and i subscribed to the economist and so i had this like you know, And in all those publications, they're always talking about, like, Mark Zuckerberg just raised $200 million from, like, a Russian conglomerate. And, you know, these startups are getting billion-dollar valuations and whatever. And, I was, you know, at the time, I was 20. And so that, to me, was like, all right, like, that's real success. That's, like, making it, right? Which, you know, I don't think anyone would argue that becoming a billionaire isn't real success, right? Um, and so I, you know, fast forward to, like, that time... At the end of WME, I, mean, I was, I thought it would be easy because everything had been, I mean, it a bit hard, but like I had a mission, it had been, you know, achievable. And, and I was actually burnt out. Um, I was burnt out by WME, by like trying to grind for every dollar, by company politics. Like we had just acquired IMG, there were power battles at the top of the company, and I was pulled into them because I was kind of, you know, uh, I happened to be in proximity because digital was new and everyone wanted a piece of it. Um, So I was burnt out. I was arrogant and I thought this is going to be easy. I'll just figure it out as I go. So I remember I actually like, I er, initially, the initial idea was a V I was infatuated with VR. I thought VR was awesome. I thought it was going to be the future. And so I and I was interested in like education in VR. I'd read Neil Stevenson's book The Diamond Age, and I loved the um, uh, the idea of the primer, right, and of like this of like ways to like teach people through experiences in VR. And so I I tried to get um, I came up with an idea for like education VR, and you know I tried to get Neil deGrasse Tyson actually to partner with me. Uh, And he was like, sure, sure. And then I never heard from him again, which is, you know, I was his, he was my client at the time and I, I'm still embarrassed about that, but there it is. I tried. Um, I don't blame him by the way. I didn't know a fucking thing about what I was doing. And, and so I like left, I was like, all right, I'm going to go start this educational VR company. I left before, I mean, this was before I did any market research, did anything to understand, like, you know, what the customers like, 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 Didn't even have a co founder. I can't code. I can't build shit. But I was like, ah, I'll figure that out as I go. And so, so like, you know, uh, any, most people listening could just stop here because, like, hey, like, obviously he failed. Um, And we can see exactly why, but uh, it was, it was a journey. And so I left. And, you know, at the time, like, my wife and I were living in a fancy apartment. Well, my, my girlfriend at the time, but we were living in a fancy apartment in Century City. you know, she had also started a company. She started an organic tampon company. Um, and so, you know, we were basically just living off, like, my savings, her savings. And and so I, I was like, I need a co-founder. I can't build this thing. I need to raise money. So I just started, like, excuse me, reaching out to people through my network. And someone introduced me to this guy, Julian Serekin, who we got along great really smart guy, kind of a product mind, which at the time I didn't really understand or appreciate um, because I didn't even know what product is, right? Um, and we kind of started thinking through what the thing would be. And, like, my wife and I like, well, we can't keep paying for this expensive apartment in Century City, so we actually moved back in with her parents. and And we were off to the races. And, like, I... I figured I'll just go get a bunch of game companies to say, yeah, we want this. I'll go get some creators from my network to say, this is cool. And I want it. And then raising money will be easy. And I did do that. The hard part was the product and that's where we failed. And that was actually the biggest, one of the biggest lessons I took away from that is like, nothing matters. If you don't have a great product, nothing matters. Doesn't matter how many people want what you've got. Doesn't matter. Uh, you know, how good your network is. Doesn't matter how much money you raise. If your product sucks, you're done. That's it. We built the product. We like, you know, Julian found some, you know, guys in the Ukraine to like build it. We had a plugin that worked in unity. The video is still on YouTube. Uh, I'll send it to you if you want to include it in the show notes. Like it was a plugin that any game developer who is building in unity could add to a 3d game. And we had built a front-end interface where, like, someone playing it could hit record while playing it. Uh, and it would record in 360 what they were doing, download that file, and then you could upload a 360 file to YouTube. And you had a 360 video for anyone who was watching. So it was actually really fucking cool, right? Think about the, like, uh, think about the, the implication of that, right? Like, you could be watching... You know someone in an esports match could be recording and afterwards upload it and then you as a viewer could like not only uh see like what they see but you could look around see where the sniper that hit them is or you know whatever right and like you know it was a cool idea but ultimately too hard to integrate you know the like too long to build like we just can't like you know the problem with outsourcing engineering is that there's no incentive for them to ever finish. They just want to keep taking your money. And, uh, and we were paying by the hour instead of for a product, which another rookie mistake on our part. So ultimately, like we couldn't get anyone to actually integrate it into a finished product and like that would go to market. And, and then, you know, at the same time, the crypto, sorry, I'm, I'm rambling. I don't know if you want me to keep telling the story This is great. Okay, cool. At the same time, the crypto market was rising, right? And Julian happened to have in 2013 and 2014 consulted for a couple of cryptocurrency companies that happened to become, and he got paid in crypto, and they happened to become some of the top 10 cryptocurrency companies. So overnight, he was a millionaire. And started day trading. And yeah, at a certain point, he was like, Look, like I could retire right now. Uh, I don't, yeah, this is hard. Like we've, we've had our, we've done the thing, but like I don't want to do this anymore. And yeah, I feel like I'm skipping stuff. So like, feel free to edit this around. It makes sense. While we were building the product, we needed money, right? We want, we need to pay those engineers in the Ukraine. I probably met with a hundred VCs, everyone in the space I was investing in VR, everyone who was not investing in VR, but thinking about it, tons of angel investors and couldn't get anyone to bite. Uh, eventually, was able to get friends and family to invest. You know, my dad invested. Uh, Amir Shakalili, who's a partner at WME in the non-scriptive space, just, the guy believed in me. He invested. He got two of his friends, uh, you know, Jansen and Cameron, to invest. Um, yeah, raised a hundred thousand um, dollars out of these people's pockets, and I think that's probably was like the hardest part about failure. Was like I lost, I lost these people who I personally know as money. Um, I still harbor a secret ambition that one day I'll be so successful I'll be able to just swoop in and write them a check with interest. You know, who knows? At least to pay them back. But yes, yeah, we had raised this money. We had built the product. It wasn't getting any actual traction. Everyone kept saying, oh, that sounds cool. That sounds cool. And then no one would actually take the engineering resources to integrate it because it needed engineering resources to integrate. And so Julian left and I... Could not cope with the idea that we were done. I, I, we had, we had raised this money at the time. You know, in hindsight, I should have just returned whatever money we had to the investors and moved on. But instead, I n- spent another year paying these engineers to keep trying to build and improve the product. Kept trying to talk to VR companies, but the overall space was also against us, right? Like VR was on a downhill trend by 2017, 2018, right? I joined too late into the space to benefit from it and from any upward trajectory which is another like you know another classic saying like timing is everything Um, but honestly I think timing was the least of our problems at the end of the day so ended up winding it down in 2018 and getting a real job thank
1: you so much for sharing all of that and I think the candor and vulnerability and you know even talking about, yeah, we were living in this apartment, and then we ended up moving back into my wife's family's basement. Like, that; those are the details that you don't often hear unless you are sitting across the table in, like, an intimate conversation with someone. So I appreciate you sharing that. Um, I'm curious, what was your support system like throughout all of this? Um, can you speak to, you know, your community the people that you've had in your corner, the mentors, and like if any of those things ebbed and flowed as your business ebbed and flowed, like how did you deal with all of that? Because founders often take on a tunnel vision, like singular narrow focus. And I mean, at times that is required, but a lot of times community and the people around us are actually like, major drivers of like allows us to be even better at growing the business.
0: Yeah you know it's funny or not funny like when you become a founder you really find out who your friends are because early in your experience as a founder you have nothing to give you have everything to ask right and I've always been someone whose general philosophy with networking is like give as much as you can um whenever I meet someone I want to find out what their problems are like connecting the dots like it's kind of like my there's you know sometimes I'm annoyed at how many people I've helped put on their current trajectory who just forgot that I got them their first job in creator economy or whatever you know uh but like that's fine um I think my point with that is as a founder you find out who your friends are and And you realize that it's always, at the end of the day, like, what's in it for me, to some extent, Um, for everyone except for the people who really believe in you. Um, And so, like, I was blessed that Amir Shakalili really believed in me and, you know, was not only willing to give me his hard-earned money, but convinced his friends to do the same. And, you know, there were folks you know, my former colleagues at WME who would introduce me to people and, uh, you know, friends of friends who would introduce me to VCs. And so, you know, there was, I think, like, your community ends up being the people that actually are closer to you or in a closer circle. Hmm, How do I say this? Everyone's community is kind of like a, set of concentric circles, right? In like the your general business community is people like who know you or you've met acquaintances. And then there's like people that you've worked with in some way or another. And then there's people who like, you have like relationships with, and then there's people who you're like, really close with, right? As a founder, those two outer circles are completely meaningless. Like anyone, like it has to be people who have moved, you've moved into the inner circle. And so like, if you're considering becoming a founder one day, put in the work of like making acquaintances and making, you know, your colleagues into like actual relationships Um, because it's the actual relationships that end up driving any benefit you get from your community as a founder.
1: Thank you. And I want to be mindful of time. So if it's all right with you, I would like to move into a rapid fire. So, Who is someone who's played an important role in your success besides your partner? I know you've mentioned a few names, um, but a mentor or a coach or someone who's like really been a game changer along the way.
0: Um, I mean, I've been fortunate to have a lot of uh, really valuable mentors during my career, like Parker Conrad taught me to write, Suzanne Brantner taught me to market, Dan Porter taught me to build relationships and, and build partnerships. Chris Jacobin taught me, you know, to make deals and think high level. Uh, Ed Simpson taught me how to run a business. Um, So I think I've I've been lucky.
1: What's been a moment in your life that you've played back in your mind? Can be a high moment, a low moment, a memory that has stuck with you?
0: Oh, man. A moment in my life that I have played back. So there is, okay, so I got fired from WME and then rehired on the same day. Uh, I was, like, freshly on Suzanne's desk as her assistant, like, maybe, like, a month in. And there's a culture, like, there's, at WME, they have, like, assistant, like, the email lists, right? So there's an all-assistants email list that, like, people will email, like, in search of and job listings and stuff like that. Like the assumption is most, the vast majority of assistants will leave for another company. And like the agency wants that because they want their alumni scattered throughout Hollywood, right? It's all about the network. Um, but like sometimes it goes off the rails and they're like big joke threads and that kind of thing. Well, in music, Benjamin Scales was not about those joke threads. And his point of view is music ass- uh, assistants do not participate. We're all business. And I had, you know, I impulsively participated in one once. And he told me, he's like, you you got to stop. Can't do it. Well, one day there was a thread going around. I think it was at the, at the time, if I remember it, right, is it was like the Lakers and the Celtics in the finals of, uh, you yeah, know, the NBA and, or, or I think it was them maybe. And like people were emailing back and forth, like memes about like the Lakers going to win, the Celtics going to win, whatever. And so like I sent a meme that was buddy Jesus from uh, I forget which Kevin Smith film. Uh, And like, you know, can't we all just get along? And Benjamin comes into the room and he is very upset. And Suzanne is out of the office. She's at uh, some music festival, like covering clients. Benjamin comes to the office and says, I told you, you can't, you shouldn't be like, I told you, like, you shouldn't do this. You did it anyway. You didn't listen to me. This is also a very disrespectful meme. You're like, you're fired. Like that was, that's it. And I was like, oh, like, do I stay and finish the day? And like, cause her, otherwise her desk would be uncovered or should I just go? He's like, I don't care. And he walked out. So I was like, well, I guess I'll stay. Also, I should probably tell Suzanne, but I'm not going to call her and bother her. She's got a bunch of meetings, and when she calls in, I'll tell her. I'm sure he called her behind the scenes. So I stayed. This was this probably happened at like 1 or 2 p.m., uh, and our day ended at 6.30, right? So at 6.20, he walks in the room and says, I'm going to give you one more chance. Don't fuck it up. Walks out. And I was like, oh, okay. And the next day I walked in and I was like all business. I was all business after that. I was the first into the office. I would come into the office at 6 30 AM every day. Last out, I'd leave at like 11. You know, I would get shit done. I would not hang out and chat with people in the hallways. I was like, whenever I walked somewhere, I was like, I'm going where I'm going. And like, don't stop me. Don't talk to me. Like, I don't have time for you. And like, it was a little ruthless, but also like people respected it and like people would like people talked about like the overnight change. And it's a funny like I had a, another friend in the mailroom with me in the in the who was in the first mailroom and she was like she was like of all the people in our mailroom class that we thought would make agent, You were the last person that anyone expected and you're the only one who did um but it was that turning point it was that tough love like benjamin scales like he wanted me to succeed he'd always wanted me to succeed right but like i don't know so he is he had been doing it long enough he's been doing it long enough he just knew like i needed that tough love and gave it to me and i did not walk out early and that changed the trajectory of my career
1: wow (laughs) what what a moment to play back and then the final question, um, what's a song or book or movie that has inspired you? So a piece of art or literature that's been wind in your sails?
0: I would say after I left WME, I rediscovered anime, right? So like, yeah, it's as, as kid growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, like they had like Dragon Ball Z on TV and like Sailor Moon and all these kind of early anime. But then, you know, you go to the agency and like at the time, yeah anime was not very popular in the West. Uh, now it's enormous. Um, and so like in an effort to sit in and do my chameleon thing, I kind of abandoned all the things that I liked because they were not, you know, uh, part of like what made money, uh, frankly for like that side of the business. And I was able to pull some of them back in through my working with, you know, get creators and working in video games and all that. But, uh, but anime I'd left behind. So I rediscovered anime, you know, while the company was failing um, as like a, kind of an escape uh, a little bit. And yeah, there's an anime called One Piece and there's the main character starts out. It, it's One Piece is one of the longest running anime of all time. It's there's like, I think currently at episode 1,000 and 100 and something. Uh, and one of the longest running manga. And the main character, like, basically starts out as a kid and, like, kind of grows throughout the series. And uh, and his goal is to be the king of the pirates, you know? And, like, it starts out easy for him. And then partway through, he, like, hits a wall. And, like, tragedy falls him. He fails and fails. And, like, in failing, he loses, like, Like everything, he loses his brother, he loses his like sight of the goal, like all that. And so like, this is a very Japanese thing, right? Like basically the message was like, you're not ready. Like the, the world beyond this point is way harder than you are ready for with sheer talent. You need to train, you need to prepare, you need to learn, you need to strengthen yourself. And so there's actually a time skip in the show where like he realizes he needs to train, he finds a mentor. Who is the like first mate to the former king of the pirates, and like trains with him for two years. And he tells his crew, like, we were supposed to meet again in three days. Now we're gonna meet again in two years. Um if I was to get another tattoo, I would probably get the tattoo that he used to sign that message, which is like a 3D crossed out and then two Y, which is like how he sends the message through like the newspaper. But like the idea is like you, 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 you may be talented, but you still have to learn and you still have to train before you can get to the next phase. And like that to me, like that felt like my story, right? Like I would gotten so far on sheer talent, but I didn't know anything. And then I failed and I lost a lot, you know? Um, I, I know that my career has been hugely disrupted by that, by that, by leaving WME by fail- my peers who are still at WME are, are partners there now um, you know like what could have been had I stayed or had I gone and got like a high level job at some other company in tech or media or whatever like yeah you think about like what could have been but um, but that's okay right like I've come to terms with that but I think that the last four or five years for me have been more about excuse me more about that learning and that growth and that, um, and needing to train for the new world, as they call it in one piece.
1: Avi, thank you so much for your time and for being with us today. Where can people learn more about your work and follow along with the new world and what's next for you?
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn. I write on LinkedIn. Uh, please follow me there. I write about the creator economy. Uh, I also have a newsletter, Creator Logic. It's at uh, www.thecreatorlogic.com, where I interview creators about how they run their businesses. So, deep dives, lots of information. Um, I think most people find it really interesting. Creators, especially, find it really valuable to hear how other creators are, what tools they're using, what partners they're using, why they picked those partners and those tools, where's their revenue coming from, all of that stuff. And And, you know, if you're in the creator economy and you need help figuring out how to work with creators, how to grow your career, whatever it is, um, I do consulting as well. Thank you. Thanks for having me.